Well, thank you for once again joining me in our study through the book of Genesis. I'm your host, Randy Duncan, and we are in episode number eight. In this episode, we're going to begin chapter two. But before we dive into chapter two, though, just want to do a quick recap of what we covered in the last episode, which was creation day six. In that last session, we discussed God creating the land mammals, and we are told that they reproduce after their kinds. And so we discussed what is meant by the word kinds, that Hebrew word mean. We also discussed what it means to be created in the image of God or in the Imago Dei. And then we also mentioned the possibility of humans originally being vegetarian, uh, at least until Noah steps out of the ark. And that brings us now to chapter two. Chapter two will take us two sessions to complete. So don't worry about where we finish today. We will wrap it up in the next session. So I'm going to start out uh, with verses one, two, and three. Uh, Just read those and then make a few comments. So chapter two, verse one begins, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the heavens and the earth were finished. Remember, that term, the heavens and the earth here, it refers to all of physical reality, the universe. It's what the Greeks would call the cosmos. We mentioned that in an earlier session. So to say that they were finished means, I think, simply that the created order was now completed. There's no more physical structure needed to support human beings or other created life. But when it says God rested, what does it actually mean there? I mean, does God have to rest like we do because he was tired from all of his creation? You know, a six-day work week, he's wiped out and he's got to rest? Of course not. God's not a physical being like we are. The Hebrew word used here for rest is Shavat. And it's spelled with the same three Hebrew letters that spell Shabbat, which is the Hebrew word for Sabbath. So this doesn't mean rest in the way we typically think of it. This has to do with God ceasing his work on the seventh day. So perhaps a better translation of this verse should have been, and on the seventh day, God ceased from all of his work. I want to make one side note observation here, and I can't help myself. But if we look at the fossil record, There is a history of many different species coming into existence before the human era. And we discussed earlier the Cambrian explosion, which saw all of these new animal body plans emerge in a a geological instant with no precursor and no explanation. And that is when God was creating. But after humans, we see virtually no new species, no real speciation events. And that may sound insignificant. You may be asking, well, what's what's the big deal about that? Why are you even mentioning that? But I think it's a significant observation because science has no real answer for why new species suddenly stopped appearing. But the Bible here gives us a real clue. It's because God ceased from his creative acts after creating humans. So before humans, lots of new species. After humans, virtually none. So God ceased or or rested on the seventh day, and he made it holy. 
It's interesting that God here is establishing a pattern of six and one. Six days of work, one day of rest. God established a pattern of six days working for humans, one day of rest. And also we'll see for the land, six years of working the land and one year of allowing the land to lie fallow. Because as it turns out, that six and one also worked very well for the land. You know, one of the ways you kept pests under control and helped prevent pest epidemics was to allow the land to lie fallow for one year out of every seven, essentially starving out the pest. And we don't need to do that today. It's not necessary since we have pesticides to control pests. But did you know that experiments were conducted in Russia and in France for about 12 years or so in each of those countries? France back uh, around 1800, Russia, you know, 1930-ish, 1940-ish. But what they tried to do was alter that six-in-one pattern. And they did this in an attempt to sort of de-Christianize society, um, as well as increase productivity, of course. But the French Republic changed the calendar. Instead of four weeks of seven days, they changed their calendar to consist of three weeks of ten days each. And the citizens were required to work nine consecutive days with one day off. So their new work schedule was nine on, one off. The Soviet calendar attempted a five and six day work weeks with rotating rest days during those weeks. But both those calendars were abandoned. Like I said, it, maybe 10, 12 years they were abandoned because it became clear um, that they resulted in much less productivity. One final word on this six-in-one or this seven-day pattern. The division of time into seven days, it seems totally arbitrary. And what I mean is that when considering time, you think about it. A day corresponds to one complete rotation of Earth on its axis. A month corresponds to a complete cycle of the moon's phase, but a week doesn't correspond to anything. corresponds to nothing. It just seems sort of unnatural and arbitrary. But maybe that's the point. When we observe the Shabbat, the Sabbath, we're acknowledging the God who ordained it, the God who created the universe, and the God who transcends nature. So verses 4, 5, and 6 read, These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. And when it says, these are the generations of heaven and earth, it simply means, look, th this is a story of heaven and earth when they were created. Such is the story of heaven and earth when they were created. I do want to mention here also that it begins um, in the day that God made heaven and earth, meaning in the day that God created everything. Here is another example of that Hebrew word for day, that yom that we discussed earlier, being used to mean more than a literal 24-hour period. Since creation took six days, then the word day here can't mean one literal 24-hour period. I mean, if you try and force a day here to mean one literal 24-hour period, then you're saying that God created everything in only one 24-hour period, which clearly contradicts Scripture. The point here is that day 
cannot mean a 24-hour period of time, but rather an indeterminate amount of time. Verses 5 and 6 here are describing the planet prior to Adam being created. And it's amazing that this description lines up with how scientists describe the formation of the planet Earth. A mist going up is literally true. And what we have here is a very simple description of the fact that prior to humans, the Earth was formed and as it cooled, due to several factors we can't get into here, a mist went up and then returned to Earth in the form of rain. And we kind of touched on this in an earlier episode when we covered creation day two and the beginning of the water cycle. Now, to be fair and to kind of give another perspective, some commentators will interpret this as describing a mist that went up in the garden or even maybe referring to underground streams is where the water came from before God caused it to rain on earth. Either way, in these verses, we are reminded that there was a time when the earth had no water cycle and that prior to God planting the garden, it was watered by streams or perhaps a mist. Verse 7 Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You know, this is one of those verses, again, that we could literally spend a month on, doing a deep dive into all sorts of different studies and ramifications. But for our purposes here, I'm just going to make a few comments. First off, when it says God formed man from the dust of the ground, It's interesting to note that you are, in fact, made of elements that can literally be found in the dirt. Get a shovel, dig some dirt, put it in a bucket, go check it out. Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, several other trace elements. I don't remember who said it. It might have been J. Vernon McGee, but whoever it was said that, look, if you boiled us down and you separated us into our chemical elements and they went and sold those elements we'd be worth about $2.98. And regardless of what we're worth uh, from a chemical standpoint, just putting those elements together doesn't give life. It simply gives you a physical body, the hardware, so to speak. The software, though, well, that's a completely different story. That requires something much different. That requires intelligence, information, coding, etc., So life, as we've discussed earlier, requires something much more than that. And in this case, it was the breath of life from God. So even though Adam had a physical body, it's not until after God breathed into him the breath of life that he became a living soul. Now, God will soon remind Adam that he is, in fact, made of dust. When he tells him in chapter 3, verse 19, that as part of his punishment, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Again, I'm not going to go into a deep dive into this right now, but I want to at least mention what some people believe about this verse, about the creation of Adam. So some Christians who are theistic evolutionists, they accept the theory of evolution as far as it explains the rise of humans, meaning they believe what science teaches about Darwinism and macroevolution, In other words, monkeys to man evolution, or uh, as it's been said, you know, from the zoo to you via the goo. Now, they believe that God created humans like the Bible says that he did, but that evolution was the mechanism God used to do it. Specifically, they believe God created hominid creatures who 
after they had evolved enough, God then breathed into them the breath of life, giving them their human quality. In other words, once evolution had produced a human body, then God implanted the Imago Dei, the image of God, thus creating humans. If you are interested in learning more about theistic evolution or evolutionary creationism as they're referring to it now, I would recommend picking up a book written by Francis Collins called The Language of God. In the book, he basically argues that DNA and the information contained in it proves creation and proves a prior intelligence because of the coding involved. Now, Collins is the current director of the NIH, the National Institute of Health, and he has served in that capacity under Presidents Obama and Trump. He's a Christian. He believes in Jesus Christ, and he has accepted Jesus as his Savior. Before the record, I don't personally believe in theistic evolution, but I understand why some Christians do. For me, though, it's not a question of could God have done it that way. I mean, God could have done it any way he wanted to. He's God. The question is, how did God do it? I'm planning on recording a video discussing theistic evolution at some point so I can go into more specifics and uh, kind of the viability of it and how it would meld with the Bible and what it does to certain doctrines. But for now, I just want you to be aware of that perspective, but I'm just going to leave it there for right now. So we're going to finish with verses 8 and 9. And verse 8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So let's talk about the garden. The garden, uh, that word actually comes from a Hebrew root meaning to be enclosed fenced off or protected. And then Eden, the likely meaning of that Hebrew term, actually means pleasure or delight. So what we have in mind here is an area that appears to be closed off, it's protected, that was very pleasurable and delightful. And of course, that's what we all think of when we hear about the Garden of Eden. But long term, isn't that what we also think about when we think about heaven? It's protected. It's kind of enclosed. You're, you're walking with God, a relationship with God, and it's certainly pleasurable and delightful. But it says God placed Adam in the garden. I mean, how is it that Adam came to be in the garden to begin with? Sometimes people think that Adam was created in the garden, but he wasn't. God placed him there after he created him. So God's placement of Adam in the garden suggests that man was meant for fellowship with God in this protected, closed-off, pleasurable area. And it wasn't a result of Adam's doing. It was God's doing. It wasn't man reaching out for and crying out to God. It was God who created man, and it was God who set up the perfect environment for fellowship. I know we haven't gotten there yet. We haven't gotten to chapter 3, but as I read this, I'm, I already know what's going to happen, just like you do in the story. And, you know, it just makes me think that, you know, after Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden, can you imagine how they must have felt? I mean, apart from the, the guilt and the shame, they probably felt like castaways or strangers in a foreign land. I mean, they're leaving Eden and heading out into the real world. And if for Christians, this is the way we probably sometimes feel in the world today. I know I do. 
I mean, this world offers temporary power and position, money, fame, fortune, celebrity, all those things. And whether we ever achieve any of those things or not, we sometimes find ourselves longing to, to, to feel close to God, to be near Him and in a right relationship with Him. And that is completely opposite of what this world offers. You know, C.S. Lewis once wrote that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And I think Lewis was on to something there. In verse 8, it says that God planted a garden in Eden, but then it says in the east. The east? East of what? East of where? So do we have any idea exactly where Eden was? I mean, of course, there's all sorts of conjectures and speculations, and, and maybe there's no way to be certain. But Moses, the author of Genesis, spent much of his time in Canaan, so it wouldn't be that much of a stretch to think Moses considered Eden to be east of modern-day Israel. And I'll discuss one possibility for the location of Eden in the next session. I'm also going to just temporarily defer any discussion about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want to wait until we get to that point of Adam and Eve actually eating from the tree next chapter before I get into that discussion. Also in the next session, we're going to look at God's creation of Eve. So I hope you'll join me for the next session as we wrap up chapter two. And until then, thank you again so much for listening and God bless.